Welcome to Stuff We've Seen. This is Jim. Uh, this week, doing things a little differently. It's a blast from the past. Uh, Teal and I, we have been doing this for five years now. Uh, this is the fifth anniversary of Stuff We've Seen. Uh, in between, there was a little bit of a break where... Uh, Teal took a break from the show. He had a move and a bunch of other stuff. And so I carried the torch as the movie Morlock. Uh, but Teal was able to come on a few times. Um, so he, it was not like he ever really left. And then a year ago, came back and we've been going uh, stronger than ever. Um, I think. I don't know. But uh, what we thought we would do for this fifth anniversary is take you back to our third episode of the show. Um, and we launched with three episodes. That was what they told you in the podcast handbook that you needed three episodes. And uh, for those who haven't heard the early episodes, we thought it would be fun because there's a lot of changes since, you know, the evolution of the show. And one of that was sound quality. Uh, we kind of figured out some of our mistakes, some from a technical nature of just how to produce better sound in the editing and also getting uh, better mics, etc. Um, so the first year was sort of a learning process and then we kind of got it all nailed down um, and then we really have been fairly smooth sailing ever since. But I have been able to go back and uh, let's just say some of what I've learned, remaster the first episode. I mean, it was definitely different mics. And I think that just from a standpoint of uh, wondering, well, how does this all work? You'll notice that things sound a little different with different mics. These are better mics that uh, Teal and I use. We use the exact same mic to record this. And, uh, you know, if we had bags of cash, we'd probably get even better mics, but uh, we don't have the bags of cash, so these are pretty good, uh, but they are certainly not what we used uh, originally, and also we didn't have the ability to easily record ourselves in separate tracks when we first started uh, recording, and we did various methods, and it took us about a year uh, before we discovered that there was uh, software out there uh, where you could record each other separately, uh, which is what we do now. Um, and this is all, of course, before the pandemic came along and the whole world moved to things like Zoom, etc. But uh, that's sort of the background for this episode where, uh, again, if you haven't heard it, you're going to hear it now. Uh, we used to do these things at the beginning where I would do some clips from different movies or different music and that's been replaced. Uh, we just go with our standard opening theme, which is from our uh, good old pal of the show, Craig Wasson. Uh, so when you hear that music at the start of every show, that is where it comes from. Uh, something that Craig had composed a long time ago, and he graciously let us use it. And so we use it at every episode. Um, so that's enough for me. And maybe if there's something that I want to make a point of when we're listening to the show, I will... Uh, chime in but otherwise this is our third episode of the show hello everyone and welcome back to stuff we've seen i am jim and now direct from out of the wasteland he's bad he's beautiful he's crazy it's it's the co-host with no last name teal <laughs> hello and welcome okay stuff we've seen so i've seen some stuff recently 
recently I have seen some stuff. Mm. And I want to start off, the, the last two episodes, we kind of had a running gag about director Peter Hyams. Yes. Journeyman director Peter Hyams. <laughs> or, or uh, you know, let's be correct, maybe journeyman auteur. And that's exactly what it is, because Peter Hyams, although he directs like a journeyman, is actually a writer director and cinematographer of his and cinematographer. Yes, he's an interesting guy. Peter Hyams, uh, very uh, I think at age 21 was a uh, news anchor. Yes. uh, And worked in documentary television for a little while before finding his way to Hollywood initially as a screenwriter. And then he got into directing and his first film as a writer director, you know, we were making fun of him a little bit, but he's actually made some pretty interesting films. So his first film as a writer director was independently financed, came out in 1978, June of 1978, called Capricorn One. Wait, 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 wait. Are you saying his first film or you're saying his first sort of major studio film? No, his first film as writer director. Oh, you're okay. All right, because I'm like, he's made a few other films before that, but... No, he did make some other films. This was his first as writer-director, and he really had to fight for it, in fact, and the film was independently financed. It's not a studio film. And was it uh, independently financed because he fought to be a director and that... Because he fought to be the director, yes. As far as I can tell, a lot of people just told him the script was crazy. And... (laughs) And he'd been he'd had the script for several, several years and had uh, done these other two films. And then uh, but he'd he'd had the script around for a while. And it's sort of like a Michael Crichton 70s kind of concept where the concept is that the U.S. government or NASA or a bunch of evil corporations uh, fake a mission to Mars uh, because there's something wrong with the technology. Uh, because giant corporations cheaped out on the uh, making of it. And so they fake a mission to Mars. These three astronauts are put on a uh, soundstage in Texas in an old Air Force hangar, and they pretend uh, that they're on their mission to Mars. And meanwhile, Elliot Gould is a dogged reporter who is following down some clues about this possible conspiracy. And so this film is an interesting entry in, in what's sort of a subgenre called the uh, paranoid or conspiracy thriller from the 1970s. Uh, this sort of post-Watergate, pre-Reagan uh, skepticism about the government, the idea that authority may be lying to us. Other films in this genre are The Conversation, Three Days of the Condor, Clute, All the President's Men. So Capricorn One is is kind of an interesting entry in this. It's pretty dated from the hairstyles to uh, to the filmmaking itself. It's it's it looks low budget by today's standards. There's one sequence where they crash land a plane, and instead of using any special effects, they just shoot it so you can't see the landing gear. And have a bunch of smoke pellets on the plane. So there's little things like that that make it sort of dated. It definitely doesn't hold up. The other way in which it really doesn't hold up is it stars O.J. Simpson as one of the astronauts. (laughs) Well, (laughs) and I got to say, his acting just doesn't hold up. He's just not a great performer. Well, well, time out now. When (laughs) When was the last time you actually saw this film, first of all? Yesterday. Okay. 
So that's even more recently than me. And I saw it last week. And that was at your uh, request that I watch this movie. And for a while, you know, it wasn't that terrible. Um, there is some backstory on the OJ Simpson. He was yes. starting to make his journey into motion pictures. And he'd actually been in an earlier conspiracy theory uh, film and had to do with like a train. And I don't know what role he was in that. I didn't see the film it was a couple of years before, but one of the stipulations uh, for Peter Himes to even get to make the movie was that OJ Simpson had to be in it. <laughs> and he didn't want to, he did not want OJ Simpson in the film. And I think he's in interviews been a little kind on the performance trying to say, well, you know, he really wasn't that bad, but I had to do some things. However, it's pretty obvious that he doesn't have a lot of lines in the movie. And, you know, and he's you can see that they cut around him at times, too. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he hardly says anything. And I have a feeling it's because he couldn't act. Not not that the acting aside from O.J. Simpson is that great. Um, <laughs> you know, you know uh, the best performance in the movie is probably Elliot Gould or Brenda Vaccaro. Yeah. Elliot Gould. He was kind of doing the Elliot Gould thing. Which, if you He's saw some of the Elliot Gould thing, and it's also the same as the Warren Beatty thing in Parallax View. It's a very similar role, yes. right down to the right down to the costuming. And you know, I, my takeaway of the movie is I, I'm not sure it's it's worth even checking out. Uh, there is, though, like any movie where you find some worthwhile uh, pieces. There's a couple of things that caught my attention. Uh, one. One well, the first one is sort of for good and bad reasons, and it's this uh, car chase of sorts where the government is on to Elliot Gould and some mysterious government goons out there that somehow are entrusted <laughs> with the entire conspiracy, yet also entrusted not to be killed later. Oh, have oh, cut it, you can you cannot even begin to talk about plot holes in this well, movie. Well, that the entire the entire movie is a plot but hole. But see, this is what this is where I feel that the movie has some validity, right? So Elliot Gould's uh, brakes are cut, but yet at the same time, this magic gas pedal makes his car speed up but the sequence is awesome the sequence is awesome. you know there's no cgi back then so this just has to be all done it's like done with sped up film yes. and he has this spectacular crash over a drawbridge and then you know the next day he's just back hanging out <laughs> oh yeah and then even his editor is sort of making fun of it like hey you know you drive any cars into the river lately kind of thing and it's like what the how did he even survive a and B, he's what, going 100 miles an hour you know, off the bridge. You would think there'd be this massive investigation just on that alone. Right. But, you know, that stuck out. But honestly, at the end of the film, there is a plane chase yes. uh, with two helicopters and a biplane. Yes. And it was all done with stunts and yes. real helicopters. It's all real. And it feels real. It's amazing. Yes, it's a great sequence, it's, and I was going to bring that up. The, the The camera work is great. The movement of the follow planes is great, yeah, and it's a fairly long sequence. It's a six or seven minute sequence. Uh, apparently, you know, and again, you know, we I, anybody can look up this stuff uh, yeah. online. Apparently, one of the stunt pilots said it was the absolute most dangerous sequence he'd ever been a part of, and he was afraid he was going to get killed told the director so that this is crazy, did not get killed, 
they finished the sequence, <laughs> and a week later, that pilot was killed in a crash. What? Yes. Oh. So he didn't get killed on the Heim film, but he just got killed in, in you know, right. a week later. But I'm telling you, this sequence is hair-raising. And Yes. With, I, with a, one of the characters hanging on to the wing of the biplane. Yes. And obviously uh, not in real life. It was probably a, a stunt, but. Uh, well, sure. But it, it, it adds to the tension of the sequence. And yeah, it's it's a really well put together helicopter chase. How, however, uh, I think they ran out of budget afterwards because ending of this movie is so terrible. And I think you know what it, I'm, gonna, I'm talking about. But the uh, final moment. You're talking about the optical slow-mo. Is that, that's a good, I, I wouldn't be able to put it in quite the, the same correct words. It is it is horrific. It, it, it almost ruined. I mean, it does. It's just a disaster. That last it, it's such it's a scene that could be so profound and really work in an interesting way. And it just fails on the execution level. I feel like filmmakers, studios, whatever, watch this movie and fixed that ending for future films that were like this because it's so bad. I mean, it feels like they ran out of film or money yes. to do anything beyond <laughs> and that they couldn't even finish uh, this one character running towards everybody because they had to optically <laughs> slow-mo it. And it's really weird. And then It's really <laughs> weird. And then it freeze frames and that's the end of the movie. Yeah, um, it is. I mean- you know, again, I, I, I well, spoiler alert. I mean, who's going to watch this movie? But it, it, at the end, there's no payoff. Well, you're expecting you, the bad guys to get their due. And there's always a scene in future films that right. the bad guys, at least there's some authorities that are rounding you, up these. You bad get guys. your moment of justice. Yeah. And uh, this you have to fill that in yourself. It, but but here's uh, one thing that I found interesting about this film is, and this comes up in dialogue throughout the film, is the idea of cynicism versus idealism. And this is kind of what was going on in a lot of these 70s films, is what do we have to believe in anymore? And so this film is talks a lot about we you know believing in the space program and the higher aspirations of man and all these sorts of things and but the end of the film is ultimately hopeful that tr we can speak truth to power that the boy scouts will win out you know i mean literally these astronauts are like boy scouts with american flags on them for the whole movie this is the funny thing I think it's a forgotten movie because a lot of people haven't watched this but if you do watch this and you happen to be somebody who is skeptical that we landed <laughs> I, a man on the, on the moon. I totally agree. Yeah. It, this movie is proof that we did. And I'll tell you why, because it shows you it is impossible to create a conspiracy that wide because the yeah. astronauts themselves would not be able to be counted on to hold the story. And that's the kind of the case here is they need a cover story. They basically threaten the astronauts with their families' lives. And then when they realize they can't go any further and that the astronauts are never going to be able to maintain the story, they basically have to create another cover story to kill the astronauts and then have to kill them in real life. So the astronauts have to escape, et cetera, la, la, la. But I, I kind of think 
that would be the real story if they tried to fake the moon landings. There's no way they could pull it off. There'd be too many people. Proof that the moon landings happened. Yeah. So if you really (laughs) want proof that the moon landings happened, you need to watch this late seventies conspiracy theory film from 1977, Capricorn One. Capricorn One, and it's uh, you're right. I wouldn't highly recommend this to anyone, but if you're into conspiracy films or into films from the seventies and you're a completionist included in in your viewing <laughs> completionist for conspiracy theory films of the 70s <laughs> yes well i did complete my journey last week when i watched it uh, and it was it was watchable that's i think the scariest part of the whole thing is i wasn't sitting there going when is this going to be over I, I was like entertained even though it was a horrible movie yeah, but it is, you know, I saw this in the theater when I was seven years old, and uh, I loved it. It was super entertaining. The guy eats a rattlesnake. It's super cool. And I, you know, it's funny. This was 1977, and I had mentioned that when I first saw Star Wars, that was my first PG movie. This yeah. came out around the same time, and I wasn't, you know, my parents weren't taking me to see this film, so I just missed it. I never saw it. I wanted to see it. I asked my parents to take me to it. I saw a similar film a few years later in the early 80s, and it was, I mean, it's its so bad. It was called Hangar 18. And oh, Hangar. You know what I'm oh, talking yes. about. And it's I, a, it's I, the I same it. movie, except that it's about a cover-up of aliens and that the astronaut guys would ever experience the aliens. They have to be uh, have done with. Have you seen it recently? No, no, no. I mean, I hated it then, so I can't imagine it being. Okay, it was bad then. I tried, it was on Netflix a few years ago. I tried watching it. It makes Capricorn one look like Citizen Kane. Yeah. I mean, that's, a, I, I'm, I'm serious. It's, no, it, it, I agree. I believe you. The sets are so bad. Uh, it's so the, the, it's like got zero budget. It looks like a high school play. Well, that's the thing is, you know, the film industry has changed, but there were a lot of these low budget independent producers, you know, uh, canon films uh, maybe they yeah. were the last of that type of thing and if a movie was a hit or a moderate hit or there was some kind of trend a lot of these low budget companies would just go ahead and produce whatever knockoff they could get yeah. a few bucks in the theaters and that was it and that's exactly the case of a hangar 18 it, oh man that movie okay th- let's not spend any more time on hangar 18 i wouldn't want anyone to get the idea that they should watch it Right. But you know what? On stuff we've seen, we're talking about stuff we've seen. We didn't say it's all good stuff. That is definitely something we've both seen is is Hangar 18. Yeah. I mean, we've been reminiscing for the past couple of weeks on on, on the past. If if you happen to come across Hangar 18, watch the first uh, 10 minutes. I don't know. I hated it. I mean, I was like 11 years old and I knew it was garbage. So, (laughs) you know, um, but I'm always willing to take a chance and and see something because there's always value. And, uh, you know, I, I think that it's good in the last couple of weeks i've seen a lot of interesting stuff i don't think we'll get a chance to talk about all of them but we haven't spoken at all about movies that are in the theaters uh we do go to the theaters i, I know that you know we have busy family I've, gone to lives. The, I've gone to the theater before yes <laughs> but you know it's our family <laughs> lives and no we, and and there is a movie that everyone's talking about well what's that one as i throw in a lead to you <laughs> everyone is talking about a star is born all the kids are talking about it what are they saying they're saying you got to see this movie well i saw it you know not opening day or anything but i think i saw it in the first week uh and you just saw this recently 
I saw it, yeah, within the last two or three days. And, uh, well, so what are your thoughts? Well, let's see. Where do I begin? Should I begin with everything I thought was wrong with it? Oh, geez. Well, I mean, first of all, <laughs> have you seen some of the other films that it was based on, especially the 1976 version? If you had seen that, uh, which I did right before I watched uh, the new one, you might not think as much is wrong with it as it improves upon what was wrong oh. with the 76 version. Yeah. So I, I, I sort of led with the criticism. But the fact of the matter is, I thought this was a great movie. Um, I really enjoyed it. I got caught up in it. I thought the performances were great there. I tried to know as little about this movie as possible before watching it. I didn't really read reviews. I sort of just heard the word of mouth on it. Um, I knew that Bradley Cooper, uh, directed it. Uh, I didn't know who shot it. I knew Lady Gaga was in it. So at, when the end credits came up, there was a name in the end credits that made me realize why I liked this movie so much. Okay. Can you guess that name? Um, is it Matthew Levitique? No, that's one of the things. I oh, mean, the okay. cinematography is fantastic in this movie. It's natural. It's raw, but at the same time, it's soft and warm. Uh, feels almost documentary style at times. Very real. Um, not a lot of distance between the audience and the actors in terms of the cinematography. Definitely an actor. You can tell the movie was directed by an actor. So are you saying that the in the credits it's an actor that you saw that nope. you were okay well i you gotta then you're gonna have to hit me up the name is eric roth the producer the screenwriter oh the screenwriter yes yes he did a and great I adaptation saw his name come up and i thought this is an eric roth script actually this is very similar to uh, his best films which i would say are forrest gump uh the horse whisperer munich uh, the Good Shepherd, Benjamin Button. He's very good at telling a larger story without necessarily having plot connections between scenes and sort of finding these mean meaningful scenes and putting them next to each other to create something larger that isn't about plot necessarily. And uh, I think Forrest Gump <coughs> is sort of an extreme example of this where there's not really a plot to Forrest Gump. And I kind of felt the same way with A Star is Born. There's movement and there's character and there's directionality, but there's not plot. One thing, and maybe you go back uh, if you can and check out the 1976 version. Yeah. You might be surprised at how close this story follows that and I say that I mean the Star is Born has been remade and this is like the fourth or fifth time. Yeah, uh, I've seen the '30s version. I've seen parts of the '50s version. I have survived the 1976 version, and then <laughs> you know having watched that really close to seeing this new film, it it it, it it's an update of that uh, because. In this case, you have a, I don't he's not really a rock and roll singer. He's not really a country, but, uh, you know, you have a performer. He is a rock. Uh, you know, I kept trying to place him and uh, I kept thinking of Pearl Jam. Yeah, he is a little like a Pearl Jam. I mean, maybe a few years ago, Eddie Vedder actually might have uh, been able to have been that character. Uh, yeah, it's certainly I, I have to tell you that he's way better. Uh, than Chris Christopherson was. And I was going to say way better is uh, Bradley Cooper. Uh, a number one difference between the two films that I think makes a huge difference is the music and songs are really good. They're really good. And, and they forward the story in an interesting way, uh, in a way that a musical does not necessarily just a movie that has music in it. 
the authenticity aspect that Bradley Cooper sings his own music and you actually buy that he could be a singer and he learned to play guitar for the film and he helped write some of these songs and rather than that could have been an ultimate disaster it, it really is not and those songs he sings i mean i that was really what got me right from the beginning you were either gonna buy this guy as a legitimate yeah. uh superstar or not and that's the biggest falsehood in the original or the 76 version. You do not buy that anybody would be filling a stadium to see Chris Christopherson. Yet people did fill stadiums yeah, to see Chris not Christopherson. not this character, which I know you haven't seen. It's unfair to <laughs> say. And it, it, that that film has a notorious behind-the-scenes production. Uh, it's amazing they even you know got the film that they did. And it isn't horrible. And Chris Christopherson is one of the best parts in it. The real, real issue is Barbara Streisand. Uh, her character okay. is, is horrible. Uh, her hairstyle, this curly hair, it's ridiculous. And she is trying to bring the fun. Wait, funnier wait, your problem with the movie is her hair. Oh my, I could do a whole dissertation on her <laughs> hair. It is is ridiculous, but it, it's everything that is wrong with her performance and her character and the vanity that I think behind the scenes Barbara Streisand brought and her ego is exactly what succeeds in the new film because with Lady Gaga. She's a bigger than life personality. Yeah. Um, you either like her or you don't like her. I'm neither here nor there. But the question is, with an ego and personality so large, can you buy that she's ever somebody that wasn't going to make it and that is discovered? That's kind of the hard pill to swallow. And yet she pulls it off. She totally pulls it and off. I have to say that I, I was shocked by her performance and how good it was, especially well, in the first half without, of the film. Sorry, it's a performance without vanity. And that's really hard. You don't expect that from somebody who's a superstar, sort of larger than life uh, character the way she is. But she stripped all that away and was just this ordinary person in this movie. And I do have to give Bradley Cooper credit. I mean, as a director, first time, He's ever directed. He's able to get a performance out of somebody who's not, I guess today it's unproven. Is she an actress? I walked away from the film saying, I'd like to see her in something else. I felt the same way, but I also felt this role was so perfect for her. Yeah. And I think she brought some input because as she was being sort of remade into a superstar, I got the sense in, you know, a lot of the dialogue and the specific scenes that they showed, she wanted to kind of show what producers try to do to you to make right. you into something that you're maybe not even comfortable with, but how they guide and say, we know what's best and how we need to remake you. So I, I definitely feel that she had some input there. And I don't feel that the second half of the film for me is as enjoyable as the first half. I think it slows down a little bit. But I did have to say, walking out of the film, I got what Hollywood does try to do for you. It entertains. And I, I was very yeah. entertained by the whole movie, even though I'd seen the story several times. Yeah, I definitely was caught up in it. You're right about the first. For me, sort of the high point of the first half is her first time on stage with him. Yes. Uh, it's kind of an electric, raw moment, and she plays it really well sort of the trepidation, the fear she has about going on stage, the desire, this 
singer that's inside her waiting to get out. She's shy, all these different things. She plays a lot of different emotions in that. And it's, it's a great sequence. Um, the other part of this movie that I think is great is from the moment they first meet their first date, really, uh, that night they spend together and uh, hanging out in the parking lot and going to the cop bar. And, uh, finally he drops her off the next morning. It's, it's a sequence that has a lot of breathing room for actors in it. And just so you, I mean, so, you know, all, yeah. all of that sequence, it's all written differently, a different dialogue, some slight, you know, tweaks here and there. It's yeah. essentially the same in the 1976 version. However, in every step of the way, it's three to four degrees better. Uh, and I think that's another tribute to the Eric Ross screenplay, the direction and the acting of Bradley Cooper. And then of I, I, Lady Gaga. It's so silly. I wish you'd just used her regular name. Um, <laughs> but it's it's like you're watching the same sequence of events in both films. And yet one is so successful and yeah. you really actually feel chemistry. Whereas in the other one, I'm like this guy, this Chris Christopherson, really rough and tumble, hard drinking, uh, drug using rock star. There's no way he's falling for right. Barbara Streisand. There's just no way where I could actually feel like Bradley Cooper's character can fall for this girl feels that she can be some salvation for him and he yeah. maybe like has a almost like he has a project that he can work on and then her i think the hard leap is always who gets involved with somebody so messed up and can fall in love with them i, I think that's still yeah. something that the movie struggles with being successful at but i bought it a lot more than i bought it in the other version well and she makes excuses for him at times, but she's also telling him, you got to get it together. Um, she's conflicted about it. And I think that's why I bought it. Yeah. And you know, there's a couple other things that I feel he as a director did that it shows some wisdom in his years that he could have easily gone for every cliche. One of the things I thought was good was his handling of his relationship with his older brother, because you don't right away know that that, is his older brother. It's not explicitly stated right away. And I yeah. feel like that's one of those things that like a lesser director would have been, you know, we got to make this very clear who he is. Yeah. And I think, that, I mean, that's again, credit to the script, I think. Um, but I got to say, Bradley Cooper has co credit on the script. So, yeah, I mean, we don't know how these movies really exactly what but, kind of rewrites. <laughs> and, you know, this film itself, it took a while. It was shot a, a while ago and there was a lot of question marks saying, oh, this movie's a failure. No one had seen it, but people were still saying, oh, there's got to be major problems with it. And then lo and behold, it comes out and, you know, it really is a top notch film. And while I've seen other films this fall, like First Man that I, that I really enjoyed and I know it didn't do well, this I found more entertaining. It, it you know, it had sort of those emotional beats that First Man didn't have. And if I had to look at the two films, even though I think one was more technically sound, uh, the other film just it did get me in an emotional spot. It did exactly what a Hollywood movie is supposed to do. Yeah, unlike uh, Bohemian Crapsody, which I saw <laughs> at the end of last week, and it was so paint by numbers that it really felt quite the opposite of Star is Born. It shows you if you watch the two back to back, 
one film had a director, the other one did not. There is no direction. Yeah. It's just, hey, we've got to film these scenes and we got to put them together. And, and they're it. all obligatory scenes, right? They're like the same scene you would have in any rock biopic. There is nothing in Bohemian Rhapsody that I have not seen before. I do think that uh, Remy Malik did a fine job as Freddie Mercury. Uh, he certainly had a lot of energy to bring to the screen. And there are several scenes where you're seeing performances of Queen that are entertaining, but you know, I was really left the theater going, why was this movie made? I mean, Queen, I don't know, was just screaming for a musical biography. I, I don't know. Yeah. Well, it turns out you're wrong about this movie because it made $50 million over the weekend. So I don't know. I I, I don't know if it's right <laughs> or wrong. I mean, I, I think it's going to see a sharp drop after that. And, you know, it looks like the same people making it and making this musical biography of Elton John. And that looks from what I've seen in the previous horrible. Yeah, that is not a movie that the zeitgeist is screaming for right well, now. Well, not this zeitgeist anyway. No, and I'm gonna, <laughs> and I think that one I'm gonna pass. Uh, you know, I, I just there's only so much I can take. Uh, give me a good musical biography with a purpose, and uh, I'll go with it. Well, here's another thing I liked about the script of Star Is Born is that it didn't focus on the typical moments. It focused on a lot of the in between moments. Uh, these smaller moments between two characters as opposed to the obligatory scenes of rock stars. So my favorite scene in the movie is Sam Elliott backing up his car. Yes. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. I, I, I knew scene. you would because it's so powerful. Yeah. Well, and it's, 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 it's a guy looking over his shoulder as he backs up his car and it's so emotionally powerful. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is there's some, there's some moments that, it's what's not said in the script yeah. is what's powerful. And then, you know, this film gives you that chance to look at what the characters are saying to each other without actually using words. Exactly. Um, yeah. That's what I mean by breathing room for the actors. It's not just getting through the lines of the scene. There's space for them to respond each, uh, to each other wordlessly. Yes, I mean, you know, so look, here's a, a a new film out there that's getting a recommendation from both of us. Sure, I, I had some problems with it. Sounds like you did too, but it, it, it we can't deny when a movie is good, it's good. Yeah, except for all the problems I had with it. Yeah, well, so give me, you know, before we move on to something else, what, what, <laughs> okay, what, give no, me a just problem. Quickly, uh, two problems. I, and, I had uh, some issues too. I did not like her father and his pals. They, they annoyed me after a while and I felt that okay. they started to drag the film. That was one of my big issues. Okay, that's interesting. Mine are really specific uh, and technical to the screenplay. One is I don't like the scene with her manager before his suicide. What? Spoiler alert! Spoiler oh, okay. alert! No, look, if you don't know the story to Star is Born by now, I mean, I'm sorry, I can't help you. Yeah, sorry. Spoiler alert on the whole show. But, yeah, spoiler alert, Capricorn 1. Uh, <laughs> you know what? Let before you, I, I, I understand why that might annoy you, and it is a scene that it causes me to wrestle a little bit because it kind of puts a spin on, well, geez, did the, did this guy, this producer and his, his ego about his new pet project, did that send Bradley Cooper over the edge? And I kind of was like, you know what? I think the point 
that Bradley Cooper was making is that might have been an excuse for this guy that he was never going to get better. He'd get better for a time, but he was never going to be better. He was eventually going to drag her down and he just could not escape his demons. So maybe that scene makes it feel like, oh, and then Bradley Cooper went off. But I, I was able to work past that and said, you know what? That might have been a trigger. Uh, but I wouldn't actually blame that producer guy oh, because I wouldn't, ultimately that, this guy is going to do what he's going to do. That's why I think it's a mistake with the script, though, because without that scene, it would feel like there's more inevitability. This guy uh, is never going to get better. He's on this downward spiral. That scene, I think, provides the audience with a little too much explanation. Like an easy and, way out. And it's an easy way out. Exactly. And it takes away sort of the mystery of it, which uh, I think would have more emotional weight. I'll give you that. So what's your second? Give me one more. So, Okay. Here's my last one is that when she comes out on stage at the end and sings at his memorial show, we haven't heard the song before. So it doesn't hit us the way it hits her. And so we're watching her experience this as opposed to experiencing it with her. And so then we see the song in flashback and that connects us emotionally to that moment with them together. But we haven't seen that moment because the film doesn't want to reveal the lyrics to the song yet. And so I think it, that last song of hers doesn't have as much emotional impact as it would if we had a little bit of the song earlier in that scene with them at the piano. Uh, you know, Piccadillo's. <laughs> I told uh, you know, you. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that those are the big things. I think we're in good, we're in good, you know, solid ground. <laughs> oh, I'm nitpicking, but you know, it's what we do here. But I'm nitpicking for a reason, which is that at the end of the movie, I didn't have as big an emotional catharsis as I wanted to, and so I started asking myself why, and those were the two reasons I came up with. You know, they could have filmed her at Live Aid, and had uh left on a high but they didn't go that route (laughs) (laughs) you know don't get me started look at you know you're never going to see this movie but you know if you're even a fan of queen or even a passing fan the problem is when you take events and then you uh switch things around just for an emotional lift yeah and you can easily look that up or already know it's annoying uh you know because live aid it was and it was actually a great great moment uh in the film it's, it was very energetic but they already have him uh having symptoms of aids and not being well and telling his bandmates none of that happened he wasn't diagnosed with aids uh until two years later And so he would have been fine. So they've now invented some things just for emotional impact. And there's a scene. And this is when it So this is when I was like, I'm done with this movie. It it, it comes in and actually uh, there's sort of a breakup with this girl in his life because she she realizes he's gay and kind of confronts him. And that is designed, you know, for sort of that emotional downturn. And then it follows up, says 1980. And there's a seen in the studio and there's kind of a fight and then one of the band members is working on an anthem to get the crowds into things and it's the we will rock you right well, yeah i saw that scene in the trailer okay that would have been great if they put it in the timeline of 1977 when that album <laughs> came out 
<laughs> and I just cannot accept that. When movies do shit like that, I'm out. Because every, I, you know what? And the thing is, is that maybe I would have forgotten and looked it up later. But, you know, that was a, as a kid, that was a pretty big song. I think with, you're expecting too much no, of this no, movie. No. But when I, I was on my T-ball league in 1978 <laughs> and we were undefeated. And I remember my uh, coach brought out this tape recorder and had the song, uh, We Are the Champions. And then played it. And it just it cemented that song for all time of exactly when that came out. So you cannot fool me. And <laughs> it's just annoying because it's so sloppy. Because who's going to go see this movie as a Queen fan? And so these throngs of Queen fans, everyone's going to know that that's ridiculous. And if you don't know that, then you're really not a Queen fan. You're an <laughs> idiot. And that just aggravates me. And that's just one of the things that I'm like, I realize this movie... Uh, I, and again, we're avoiding uh, the we're controversial avoiding the elephant. In the yeah, room. we're avoiding that. And that's fine, because honestly, I don't really know how much that guy even directed this movie it has no style, which I guess would be in keeping because that that's director has yeah. no style whatsoever. And I'm not going to mention his name. You can look it up. And then it was ghost directed by this other guy who's like an old um, British actor who did a few uh, things in the 80s. And he's actually now directing the Elton John movie. So we're going to be interesting. Yeah, yeah, so we yeah. have that to look forward. We to. do see there's a connection. <laughs> Anyways, you know, we only have a little bit of time. And I do want to mention uh, and I don't know how far we'll get into this, but I saw a movie last week. Hadn't seen it in almost 30 years. And the reason why I watched it, I, I caught that it was coming on. I taped it so that my wife and I could see it because I asked her, have you seen this movie? And she said, no, no, no. And I knew it would be right up her alley. It's this movie called Miracle Mile. And you were the first. I saw this movie when it was originally released. You were uh, the people that walked told me in about blind it. to the theater. I knew who Anthony Edwards was. But uh, other than that, I knew nothing about this movie when I walked in. And I don't know how you know, this is a real trick. Part of the fun of this movie is really not knowing too much about it. I think we really, this is one where I think we should avoid too many spoilers. Okay. So your your vote is that we don't talk too in-depth about it. Well, my vote is we don't talk about the ending. Okay. Well, I'll tell you this. This is how I came to the movie originally. You told me about it. And when I first you know, knew you, You'd have a way of describing things. You'd tell me about a plot of a movie and you had a way of telling me this details of a story that didn't sound like it really existed. And <laughs> you sold this film on kind of like this interesting premise. It starts out where it looks like it may be a low budget sort of romantic comedy where a guy, a musician who's in town in L.A. for a gig uh, meets this girl at the La Brea Tar Pits. And they have a connection and they spend the day together and have a wonderful time. And he has to go back to his hotel to rest. And she has to go back to the apartment that she's sharing with her grandma. And they say, we're going to meet up later tonight after I get some rest. And uh, then we're going to meet at this coffee shop, which is nearby on the Miracle Mile. Uh, for those mm -hmm. who don't know, is a section uh, near uh, Wilshire, sort of the business district of and a couple West. of museums there, La Brea Tar Pits, and a big apartment complex development called uh, Park La Brea. And is that which, where she? That's where she was staying, right? And that's where she lives. Yeah, a lot of a lot of the movie takes place in this uh, in this development. Yeah, so it starts off like okay, and then 
things start to get a little interesting due to some various circumstances. I think late. you can tell us what those circumstances well, are. Well, he, he, he misses his uh, wake-up call. Uh, the power goes off into the building. It's actually his fault. It's a very strange sequence of events. Uh, the music is by Tangerine Dream. Yes. 80s uh, movie score people. And it has that Tangerine Dream sound. And he goes to the coffee shop late. And it's late in the morning. And she's already been there and left. And he starts to talk to the waitress there. And you know this person. And he is going to go outside, call or try to wake her up. He can't get her on the phone. And then the phone rings at this payphone, and he answers it. And there's a panicked call on the other end. And somebody tells him some very, very disturbing information. And that kind of kicks off the rest of the movie, which is done as close to real time as possible. And what I like about this movie, I thought it was just, whatever the first time i saw it and then i haven't seen it in 29 years watched it last week and i was really floored because the movie plays with is what's happening real is the yes. in, can you trust the information being given can anybody trust him and then even more and again it's not necessarily a dream but the movie plays out like a dream it's a, like a non-completion dream. He has a mission. No matter what's going to happen between this phone call and the end of the movie, he's trying to reconnect with this girl or woman that he met, and he needs to see her and find her, and obstacles keep coming into his way, yes. and, and they get more absurd and crazy, and the events... Remind me of the kind of dreams that you have where there's sort of a mission and you can't quite get there. And you're locked in this frustrating loop of never being able to, you know, one step forward, two steps back always. Yeah. And even when he sort of connects with her, he can't get the kind of quality connection that he's looking for based on the events that are going around. And if you haven't seen this film. I, I don't want to say anymore, and you should go and take a look at it. Miracle uh, Mile. Yeah, it's absolutely worth checking out. I watched it again about six months ago. I've seen it probably four or five times. It and was just only it, the second time I watched it. Okay. Yeah, it holds up. It's not a piece of brilliant or filmmaking or anything, but it is a movie that does – it's like a really good Twilight Zone episode. In fact – in fact, in fact, yes, in <laughs> fact, the guy, the story, it's actually very similar. We're going to we're circling back to Capricorn one. Here is a guy who was, you know, a screenwriter and he had this script. Everyone in town, late 70s, loved it, wanted to make it, but they only wanted him for the script and they found there were some elements that were too dark for their liking and they wanted to change the ending. He didn't want to. He didn't want to compromise. He had a very specific vision and he felt that this film had to be made by him a certain way. So the story is it went into turnaround. He was able because he had already started to sell some scripts and he was able to make a film called Cherry 2000. He oh, yeah. bought back his script for $25,000. And no sooner did he do that, it sort of added more cachet. Warner Brothers came around and they offered him $400,000 for the script. And he right. said no. They had plans to make his entire story one big Twilight Zone segment for Twilight Zone the movie. It was going to be the right. only story. And, of course, they wanted some changes. 
and he didn't want to make them. So when he finally got to make the film himself, got everybody attached, the producers of the entire film kept on trying to get him to change a <laughs> few key elements. Certainly the ending they wanted changed, yeah. but they also wanted to change some elements in the movie that might seem a little bit uh, anti-American and they wanted it to be a little bit more pro-American. Right. And he said no. So a credit to him, but the downside was it got no release and it's not even a film that's like a cult favorite. I, I think it's almost a forgotten movie. Yeah, I think it is almost a forgotten movie. I think you're right. I mean, is it available now? Where did you? Uh... Uh, I I saw it on cable on MGM. They, okay. they have, you know, there's a station and they show films and then uncut. And it was only an hour and a half, which is another. Yeah. It's another thing that a lot of the movies that I've been seeing lately, older, are all about 90 minutes. And they're just, you know, just the right amount of time. And so many yeah. movies today have to be two hours and 15 minutes, two and a half hours. And they go on and on <laughs> where, you know, the other in the in back in the day films, really 90 minutes was the sweet spot. And if you could tell a film from beginning to end in 90 minutes. Yeah. And it really it's nice and succinct. Yeah, it really is. And that movie is nice and succinct. And, and the real time contributes. It's almost real time. It's not really real time. But it has a lot of tension because it's so tight at 90 minutes. Yeah. And it's again, it's it's it goes it goes pretty far out. So uh, I definitely if you can check it out, it's it gives me I give it a high recommendation. Yes, I I, I do, too. Um, so, again, we've gotten close to the end of our time, uh, but, you know, we've got never ending supply of uh, things to talk about which we will on future episodes we are now up on uh, apple itunes so you can find us there and uh, well if you're listening to this you found us somewhere uh, <laughs> but uh, you can always drop us a line at uh, feedback at jim and and subscribe to us now on itunes or wherever we are found on the internet and we definitely would love the support anything else from you I got nothing else. All right. He's got nothing else. Till the next time. Stuff we've seen, Jim and Teal. Bye. <laughs> well, there you have it, everyone. Uh, it was our third episode of Stuff We've Seen, taped back in 2018. Kind of a blast from the past. It was fun to re-edit. Basically, uh, it's the same program, but just with a few changes. Anyways, looking forward to bringing you more episodes in the coming months probably not for a few weeks with the holiday uh, thanksgiving coming up but uh, look for us in december uh, maybe earlier you just never know when we feel like dropping an episode but otherwise i would think early december and we'll see what we got for you but uh, in the meantime feedback at jimandteal.com or jimandteal at stuffweseen.com and also you can go to our website at stuffweseen.com and you can also follow us on uh, Threads and Instagram. All right, everyone. Uh, take care and uh, try to see some stuff. Bye.